On December 25th, 2017, Andrew Barry, his six-year-old daughter Chloe, and his four-year-old daughter Aubrey were found brutally stabbed in their Oak Bay, British Columbia apartment. Chloe and Aubrey were found in their rooms, with each of them being stabbed over a dozen times. Andrew was found naked in the bathtub with a series of horizontal slashes across his throat. He had 16 stab wounds in his chest. So how did this Christmas tragedy strike and who was responsible? Hi, hello, what is up and welcome or welcome back to Girl You Haven't Heard and Happy New Year. This is the podcast where we discuss true crime and Black Canadian history from a critical decolonial perspective, but above all else, without all the unnecessary propaganda that others love to include, but we hate to listen to. Let's get into this week's case. Sarah and Andrew officially met and got together in 2009. They met when they were both working at BC Ferries. They initially seemed quite happy, but unfortunately things took a turn for the worst after Chloe was born in 2011. Andrew had a serious gambling problem that he never really talked about. He kept it a secret for years. Sarah never really knew the extent of his issue. She just thought it was a casual hobby that he partook in a couple times a week to like de-stress, but it's very likely that his addiction was a big stressor for him and ultimately for their relationship. In 2013, Andrew was arrested for domestic violence. Disgusting. What exactly happened leading up to this arrest is unknown, but the violence was directed at Sarah, and it is what allowed her to come clean about how he had been mistreating her their entire relationship. It ultimately led to the downfall of their romantic relationship. Because of his arrest, there were two investigations that were sprung by the Ministry of Children and Family Development, which is the governmental child welfare organization in British Columbia. His visitation and custody of the girls was disrupted and even paused multiple times over the next four years due to this. Over this time frame, Andrew's gambling would only get worse. He would also begin facing struggles with a deep depression due to his life literally falling apart before his very eyes. In early May of 2017, he actually quit his job and cashed out his $40,000 pension. Oh, Lord. His sister, who is also a police officer, which boo, 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 tomatoes, tomatoes, she said that this decision alarmed her. She said for him to give up his job was a very extreme decision, and it concerned me because I didn't understand why. We never had a discussion about it. But despite her alarm and her obvious concern, she claims that she had, she agreed to put his pension money into her bank account because his bank account was frozen. I want you to be so expeditiously, supercalifragically, espionadociously fucking for real now. Like, be fucking for real. She began taking out cash for him whenever he needed or sending it to someone Andrew said was a neighbor who would then give the money to him. She said that she often insisted that he seek out mental health supports, but he refused. He would go long periods of time without speaking to her unless he needed money, so she would check on him quite often. On one instance, she didn't hear from him, so she contacted a mental health service in Victoria to go and check on him. They were unable to locate him, so she decided to go down to his apartment herself. This was unusual because by this time, she had stopped visiting him at his home because she said that the apartment was just so messy. It was just overwhelming. She said that it was cluttered. It was a mess. He never got rid of any of the kids' toys. They were just everywhere, and it had been like that for a long time. She couldn't find him, so she just kept calling and texting him. She told him that he needed to get help, and he eventually responded at refusing. She said that he was just so opposed to talking to anybody about his mental health. For him, he was perfectly fine. This is fine. I'm okay with the events that are unfolding currently. In May of 2017, Sarah and Andrew's custody agreement had officially been sorted. 
Sarah was granted primary custody or 60% and Andrew was given the remaining 40%. He was obviously not happy about this, but he couldn't do anything because court orders. Their relationship in the following months, Sarah says, was extremely strained. It was tense and they spoke exclusively through written communication like emails, texts, or recorded phone calls so that there would be record of what they talked about. So it was no he said, she said type stuff. But she said that she did all that she could to keep the peace for the sake of their daughters. Around the same time, Sarah became aware of the extent of his gambling issues. She had actually been talking to a friend about his debts, and she was saying that her gut was telling her that he's in a bad place and he may have some people after him. She had only learned this information after Andrew's mother emailed her about what was going on. Somehow Andrew found out, and after this, he cut off all communication with his parents because he said that they were meddling in his familial affairs. So remember that 40k he gave his sister? She said by fall of 2017, all of the money was gone. Alrighty then. She said that some of it went to paying bills, but for the majority, a lot of it was funding his gambling addiction. She knew that her brother was in a really tough spot, so she kept inviting him to spend the holidays at her house as early as the end of October, which is like over a month in advance of holiday season. But he literally just ignored her. He didn't want to hear it. On December 19th, 2017, she drove down to his apartment once again to make contact because she was getting worried about him. Now that he had ran out of money, he had no reason to contact her. She arrived in the evening and she tried to buzz the apartment, like buzz in, and no one answered. She walked around, she saw that his lights were off, but she also saw that the hydro had been cut off. After her visit to his apartment, she learned that he had been without hydro for three weeks and he was facing eviction. She continued to text him anyways and she was basically begging him to bring the girls to her house when they visited with him over the holidays. He finally responded and all he said was, let me see how this unfolds. Now, Sarah was aware that Andrew was without hydro, as Chloe said, that being at his house was like camping since they use flashlights all the time, which I thought this was sad, but it was also really sweet and really innocent. Sarah said that she didn't address anything with him face to face because she didn't want to have a fight. She didn't want to provoke him due to his history of DV, and she didn't want to agitate him and then have to leave her kids alone with him. But as the weeks passed without hydro, it didn't seem to be going back on. She was worried about their well-being and what the first part of their Christmas would be like in the dark. She emailed him about her concerns, but got no response. She informed the necessary authorities about what was going on as well, and she also got no response from them. Well, just as I thought, trash. She couldn't just refuse to take them to his house because then she would have been violating the custody order, and then Andrew would have been able to take her back to court and get primary custody or even full custody because of it, or he could have just called the cops and then he, the girls would have had to go back to his house anyways. December 21st, 2017 was Sarah's birthday and the day that she was to drop the girls off at Andrew's house because he was to have them until Christmas afternoon. He offered to let the girls stay with her for the entirety of her birthday, but she said no. And she says that turning down his offer was the biggest regret she has ever had in her whole entire life. On December 22nd, 2017, Sarah saw her daughters alive for the last time. She had to go back to Andrew's to drop off Chloe's favorite stuffed animal, Lammy, which she could literally couldn't live without. The girls asked her, Mummy, how many nights until we see you? She told them it was supposed to be three. She said supposed to be because she was hoping that she would be able to get them back from Andrew sooner because he didn't have hydro. 
She was hoping the authorities would step in and do the right thing because she knew that Andrew wouldn't willingly do so. She told them that she loved them and she hugged them for the last time. She saw Andrew at this point and she said that he looked distant and far away as she asked him to check the email that she sent. She sent another email this day stating that while two nights without power might be an adventure, she was concerned for the girls spending longer than that without power for the lights, the fridge, cooking, and all of the other things you need electricity for. It's unclear if he ever read this email because he did not respond. On December 25th, 2017, Andrew was to return his daughters to the custody of Sarah Cotton at 12 p.m. per their custody order. The girls were meant to spend the first part of their day with him and then go to Sarah's house for the rest of their family time. Sarah had actually even invited Andrew's parents to spend the day with them since he had cut contact off with them and they wouldn't be able to see their grandkids any other way, which I thought was really sweet. When the girls didn't arrive as expected, she then drove to his house, knocked on two of the windows, but she wasn't able to peek inside because of the blinds. She just assumed that they weren't home. She didn't hear any movement. She didn't hear any noises or voices or even music coming from inside the apartment. Because she couldn't hear anything, she panicked a little bit, but she was just like, okay, you know, logical thinking, they're just not home right now. So she went back home and waited for them to be dropped off or to hear back from Andrew about what was going on. When the girl's grandparents arrived at her house at 2 p.m., the girls still were not home and no one had heard from him. So she began to panic a lot at this point. She knew something was wrong. She emailed herself a copy of their court order and headed back out with Andrew's mom. So the two of them went back to his apartment and then they also went to several places that he frequented where they thought he might be, but they couldn't find him. So they immediately went to the Oak Bay police station. She went in there and she explained the situation to the police. She showed them the court order and the violation of the time period that they were supposed to be home is what allowed the police to enter his home or do whatever was necessary to locate him as he was now violating a legal order. So the pair were just waiting at the police station for some news about what happened. Sarah said that she had no choice but to wait. It felt like forever and that's how she knew it wasn't going to be good. When authorities entered Andrew's apartment, it was pure and utter chaos. There was blood all over, and it was clear that something had happened, but they had no idea what. They found the girls in different rooms, stabbed over a dozen times, and they had died. Chloe had bruises on her, which indicated that she had experienced blunt force trauma prior to her death. Andrew was found naked in the bathtub, bleeding, with his clothes neatly piled near the tub. The horizontal slashes on his throat had a bunch of small cuts or nicks on top of them, which was unusual, and the stab wounds on his chest were not life-threatening, and none of them were more than a couple centimeters deep, which was also unusual. That's suspicious. That's weird. Sarah was back at the police station while all of this was being found. Her gut instinct was telling her that something was seriously wrong, and that was only confirmed when a large group of police officers arrived at the station before she was asked to go into the chief's office. While in the office, a pair of female officers entered behind her. They hugged her tightly to let her know that her daughters were found severely injured. When she heard this, she initially believed that they were alive but just very badly wounded, but then the officers let her know that due to their injuries, both of her daughters had died in Andrew's apartment. She just screamed. And she said she was in complete shock. While she was finding out the news at the police station, Andrew was being rushed to the hospital. Andrew was rushed into emergency surgery for the treatment of his wounds. 
When his cop sister found out what happened, she immediately rushed to be by his side. He made it out of surgery fine, and that's when his sister was able to be in the room with him. She said that the moment she walked into the room, he reacted to her presence. He popped up in the bed, and with an immense amount of intensity, he said, Kill me. What? Um, ciao. Anyway, so... Turns out, he made similar requests to first responders when they found him bleeding in the bathtub. After this, she left. She returned on December 27th when Andrew was more awake and aware of himself and his surroundings. He had trouble speaking at this time, so they were talking to one another through written communication on a pad of paper. He talked about a lot of things, but none of which outlined who he thought to be responsible for what happened for killing his daughters, or what he thought happened, or just anything in general. He wasn't talking about anything that really mattered. His sister asked him in the hospital why he had a black eye, and he responded that he didn't know. Okay. But while he was in the hospital, he made sure to complain about Sarah and his own mother, stating that they were bullies who treated him like he didn't matter. Oh, boo-hoo. Let me play a sad song for you on the world's smallest violin. He later wrote, I couldn't take them anymore. Evil. The lies they created to get their way, absurd. I couldn't stand up to them. They also discussed the letter that authorities found when they entered his apartment on Christmas Day. It was left on his kitchen table and addressed to his sister. The letter itself was a long list of Andrew's frustrations, but specifically with his mother and Sarah. His sister thought that it was a suicide note of sorts. Amongst many other things, it said, Bullied, betrayed, and miscast. I set out to leave with the kids. I love you and your children, but it felt better for myself and my kids to escape. She said she wasn't able to exactly figure out what this meant. Like, girl, be so for real right now. What else could it possibly mean? She said that seeing him in the hospital made her question how someone could get past losing their children in such a violent way. Stating, he's my brother. I can see that he's my brother, but at the same time, this is not my brother. He was so thin, his hair was crazy, and his eyes were too. Andrew spoke to a hospital psychologist and said that he had tried to die by suicide. At some point, while in the hospital healing from his injuries, he was placed under arrest after being charged with two counts of second-degree murder in the death of his daughters. Even after this happened, he was not at all forthcoming about what, what occurred, what took place. His sister said, I don't know if Andrew killed his daughters or not, but I know he was there, which we all know that, girl. For me, when I look at him now, I don't see my brother. I see a shell of a man. My God, who the hell cares? The day Andrew was healthy enough to leave the hospital, he was arrested, taken into police custody, and was awaiting trial. The day this happened, his sister gave him a sweatshirt to wear. She used a marker to write I love you and truth on the inside of the sweater cuffs. She said she did this because she thought she would never see him again and she still loved him. She said that they were meant to be her final words of wisdom. His only way of getting past all of this was for him to just tell the truth. So Andrew opted in for a jury trial, which you can have a bench trial, which the judge or you could have a jury trial. He chose that. And there were two completely different versions of events of what went down that was shared with the full courtroom. There was the prosecutions, 
Then there was Andrews. Whenever answering questions, Andrew did it in like a very weird, very roundabout way. He kept talking in hypotheticals about what he wished he did rather than just directly talking about what happened. So leading up to Christmas, the prosecution made it clear that they believed that Andrew had been planning to murder his daughters and then kill himself for months. He had stopped paying all of his bills and he had actually stopped opening and collecting his mail as well. He was struggling with money as he had gone through his $40,000 pension in a matter of months. So he wasn't able to keep the lights or the electricity on. He couldn't afford food. He was facing eviction and he couldn't afford Christmas gifts. And these were all things that Andrew himself corroborated that he couldn't afford any of this. The prosecution said that he had become hopeless and unbearable. And I, oh. They believe that he chose Christmas Day because he knew that this would be the largest psychological blow to his parents and to Sarah, the people who he was most angry with. They believed it was clearly planned because the girls were found in different rooms. If they were in the same room, he knew that they would scream louder and they would fight harder to protect each other, but also the likelihood of one of them getting away was a lot higher. The prosecution said that it was clear that he had tried to kill himself after beating Chloe with a baseball bat prior to stabbing her and then moving on to stab the youngest, Aubrey, both of them to death. In the end, he was always meant to survive the attack, but the girls were not because of his long, simmering animosity towards Sarah. She ended the relationship and he didn't want to. She was doing better than ever and she was super happy no longer being in a relationship with him. She also won primary custody of the girls. He was abusive and violent and used to winning, controlling things, and being on top, so these were all things he couldn't stand. He was envious of her position in life. She was thriving, and he was struggling. Hard. He knew that after Christmas, another investigation would be opened, and he would temporarily or permanently lose custody of his girls due to his inability to properly care for them. The Crown said that he believed that if he couldn't have them, no one could. The prosecution asked why he didn't tell anyone who was responsible for the attack or what happened prior to trial, and Andrew didn't have an answer, but instead decided to now come clean, quote-unquote, about everything. Electric chair. He said that for some time now, he doesn't say for how long, he was in debt to a loan shark named Paul to the tune of $25,000. He said that he and Paul had met 20 years ago when he was playing Baccarat in, in a Metro Vancouver casino. For those who don't know, because I didn't know, it's basically just a card game where you compare the cards that the banker has and the player has, but the banker typically wins about 51% of the time, at least. He said that he didn't know Paul's name, he didn't know where he lived, he didn't know what he did for work, or literally anything about him, except for the fact that he was tall, he was Chinese, and he was in his 50s. Liza Minnelli, lies. If you don't know anything about him, why would you take money from him? It's already not making sense, but we move. It's unclear how long his debt was outstanding, but in early 2017, Andrew says that one of Paul's henchmen threw a rock through his apartment window. He said that this was only done to confirm his address despite his name being on the buzzer code outside the door. And like, we have phones. It's not the Stone Ages. I don't know. This was a very weird thing to say. But the day that this happened, Sarah was actually on her way there to pick up the girls. So when she got there, she saw the broken window. She asked what happened. And both of the girls were like, yeah, a neighborhood kid accidentally threw a baseball through the window. So Andrew was lying. He talked about quitting his job in spring of 2017. And he said that he did this because he was so desperate to pay back his debt quickly. And his only option was to cash out his pension but not immediately pay off the debt. 
His plan was to gamble with all of the 40000 then win enough money to go away with the girls. Never said anything about paying back the debt, just taking the money, running away with the kids. So he's admitting that he was going to kidnap them if he had the money to do so. Oh, cool, 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 cool. His version of events is already not making him look good. Like, this is the stupidest series of lies you could ever tell. On July 15th of 2017, he said that he gave $10,000 to Paul's associates to cover the interest on his debt, but not the debt itself. The Crown Attorney straight up said, I'm going to suggest you did not give $10,000 to the henchmen because there are no henchmen and there is no Paul. Ooh. He wasn't able to pay off his debt in full by the summer of 2017, so he said that he agreed to store drugs in his apartment on behalf of Paul. At the end of August, he missed another deadline for paying back the money he owed, and so he agreed to give Paul's henchmen a set of keys to the apartment so they would be able to come and collect the drugs whenever they wished. The prosecutor asked him, if this is true, why didn't you think something like this would have affected your safety and the safety of your children? He said, and I quote, I'm just not that bright. I thought it was easy and would be over. In November of 2017, he said that the pressure was mounting. He felt alone. He didn't have anyone to turn to for help. And so he tried to commit suicide, but he was unsuccessful. There's no records to prove that this is true or verify this claim, by the way. He also said that a lot of the pressure was because Christmas was right around the corner and he confirmed, like I said earlier, that he didn't have money for food, let alone Christmas gifts, and so that made him feel really inadequate as a person, but especially as a man. He said that this is where the note that authorities found that was addressed to his sister came from, and he just never moved it, which doesn't make sense at all. On December 8th, he said that he had plans to meet with Paul about an extension for repayment of his debt, but last minute he tried to get Sarah to pick up the girls from school when it was his custodial time. She couldn't, and so he blamed her for why he missed the ferry and ultimately missed this meeting. Making it clear, he was trying to put the blame onto her for why their children were murdered, when no matter what the scenario was, if it is like he's saying, it's his fault. If it's what the prosecution's saying, it's definitely his fault. But either way, his fault is not on Sarah. He said that on Christmas Day, it snowed a lot, which was super rare for their area as they don't usually get a lot of snow, if any at all. He said that the girls were so excited about the snow that they took two trips to a nearby golf course, walking a total of four kilometers. He said that he knew he was ignoring the court order, which required him to return the girls to Sarah by noon. He knew that he would get in trouble, and he didn't care. He said that they wanted to keep tobogganing, and the snow was melting, so they wouldn't have a chance to play in the snow again if they did go to Sarah's house. It would have melted by then already. But also, little sidebar... I'm from Winnipeg, okay? So I understand snow, tobogganing, and all of those things. If there is a little bit of snow, and that snow is melting, you can't go tobogganing. It won't work. Like, you won't have fun. There has to be a pretty thick layer of snow, enough to cover the ground, and it's got to be quite compact. Otherwise, you're not going to have fun. Like, you're not going to go sliding. It's not going to be a good time. So I don't believe this. He says that shortly after he and the girls got home, they were attacked by a stranger with dark skin and dark hair. Why are the villains in his story two people of color who are strangers? So I am confusion. Like he's really trying to play it off like the boogeyman did this. He says that he was attacked twice by this man with dark skin and dark hair. The first time was when he was in his bedroom. He was tackled from behind. He was thrown onto the bed. His chin was pulled back and he was slashed in the throat. He said that he felt a searing pain and that's when he passed out. When he regained consciousness, he said that he made his way to Chloe's bedroom and then passed out again in the doorway. 
He said when he woke up a second time, he crawled to her bed, he touched her, realized that she had already passed away, sees the blood everywhere, then remembered Aubrey. How do you forget that you have another kid? He said that as he's walking to Aubrey's bedroom, he's attacked again in the kitchen. He said that he remembered grabbing a knife and then he was thrown to the floor. The next thing he said that he remembered was waking up in the bathtub with a bright light shining in his face, hearing police, police. And then someone say, this is the guy who killed his kids. Well, if the boot fits. The prosecution said that everything Andrew claimed happened is a lie. And most of it defies physics and makes no sense at all. Crown attorney Patrick Weir said that Andrew's testimony was, quote, like the plot from a bad, low-budget movie. Sarah was one of the last to testify in the trial, and she said that there was so much light and joy in our house, and now it has all gone silent. To try and understand how the father of my children is capable of doing such a horrific and unimaginable act to his own daughters is inconceivable. All they ever did was love him. The jury immediately went into deliberation at the end of trial on September 23, 2019. On September 26, 2019, only three days after deliberation began, the jury reached a verdict. Sarah's supporters and basically their whole community was present. The jury found Andrew guilty of two counts of second-degree murder. As verdicts were read out, Andrew was emotionless. Sarah's supporters and community members hugged the Crown attorneys after the verdict was read out. Friend Valerie Jerome said that there needed to be a conviction and I felt satisfied for Sarah and her family. Those little girls are gone, and thank God there's justice, but it's such a tragedy that it happened. The judge also asked the jury to give a sentencing recommendation, but they weren't unanimous on this. Two said 10 years total, and the other six said 15 years per count, so 30 years total. On December 19th, 2019, Andrew was given a life sentence without the possibility of parole for 22 years. During sentencing, his head was down. The courtroom was packed and they actually had to make an overflow room available due to the sheer amount of people who showed up to see him be sentenced. At sentencing, the judge said that Andrew's testimony was unbelievable. It's unfathomable that henchmen for a loan shark named Paul came into the apartment and killed the two girls but didn't kill him. The judge said that Andrew's motivation for the act was due to his out-of-control gambling addiction, mountains of debt that continued to pile up, and his worsening depression, but also a large part of it was his animosity towards Sarah. After he was sentenced, Sarah spoke out and said no length of sentence was enough for his crimes. Chloe and Aubrey lost their lives in the most brutal way at the hands of their father. I have lost the life that I loved and knew. And I do not believe that Andrew, who has shown no remorse and a complete disregard for the lives of our daughters, should ever get a second chance. She went on to slam the BC Ministry of Children and Family Development, who failed the girls leading up to their death. She said, I did everything in my power to keep my children safe. However, my concerns made to MCFD about my children's well-being and their father's care and Andrew's mental health fell on deaf ears. She said, I can only hope that changes will be made to our family law system so that tragedies such as ours do not happen again. She said that she has experienced depression and anxiety after the loss of her daughters, who were the center of her world. She said her life is like a nightmare that she never wakes up from. She will never have that content feeling of knowing that her children are fast asleep in their beds. 
The ministry responded to her statements, but they didn't take any accountability or responsibility for anything, which shocking, right? Not at all. They said that they assess the risk to children and the apparent's ability to provide care, which is clear they did not do this because Andrew had a history of domestic violence, but also he wasn't able to properly provide care because he had been out of work for months, his bills were piling up, he was facing eviction, and he didn't even have electricity. What's not clicking? In mid-June of 2022, Andrew's lawyers told judges John Hunter, Patrice Aubaru, and Joyce DeWitt Van Oosten that they were appealing on three grounds. They said that the judge presiding over the case messed up in the charge to the jury that she failed to explain the difference between murder and manslaughter, which... Okay, I don't think she would, but anyways, said that she messed up a ruling about the influence of Andrew's statements in the presence of firefighters, paramedics, and healthcare workers when he was first found in his apartment and then again in the hospital. They said that she was incorrect in her finding that paramedics and firefighters were not persons of authority who could influence the prosecution, particularly about the statements where he said, kill me and leave me alone. They said that firefighters and paramedics were clearly acting in concert or in tandem with police, which is true, they almost always do. But they said that the police investigation and the trial process were inadequate, that the length of sentencing and the period of parole ineligibility was excessive and unfit. Oh, all right. He was found guilty of killing two children, his own children, okay? Typical life in Canada is 25 years before you're eligible for parole, but the jury was asking for 30 years, so 22 is not excessive by any means. They said that while Andrew was in the hospital, he was being held under the Mental Health Act, and that his charter rights were violated because he wasn't informed of his right to silence. He said police allowed a doctor to take Andrew's statements and that the doctor had knowledge that Andrew was going to be prosecuted, but... I don't know how accurate this is because nobody knew that he was responsible at first. He was just in the hospital getting help. But then he started to incriminate himself by the statements that he was making to his cop sister and everybody else. Crown prosecutors rebuttaled these claims and they said that the judge correctly interpreted the law and that she also found no evidence that Andrew had confused paramedics with the police. So the issue isn't that they were acting in tandem, it's that he would get them confused, which he didn't. He wasn't under arrest at the time and first responders were strictly there to offer medical care, which that part's debatable. In November of 2022, the BC Court of Appeals unanimously dismissed his appeal. They said that none of the grounds of appeal warranted intervention by the court for the convictions. He, however, can still apply to the Supreme Court of Canada to appeal this decision to uphold the conviction. So he still has one last route to go. Oh, Lord. Again. So Sarah actually spoke it again after changes were made to Canada's Federal Divorce Act, which ordered courts to consider familial violence when determining custody for children. She said that the Divorce Act would have likely impacted their situation. She said if these changes had been in place when they were in court in 2016, 2017, the outcome would have been different and it's very likely that her children would still be alive to this day. So we have now come to the part of the podcast where I give my thoughts, my opinions, everything that I'm thinking about. I originally wanted to release this episode on Christmas Day and then I thought that might be a little bit morbid so I decided not to. Decided to wait till most of the holidays were over. But this case is absolutely horrific. I do think that Andrew killed his kids. Like I don't really think that that's up for debate. I do think that he did this. I do think it was out of animosity and frustration and also just feelings of inadequacy. People kept mentioning his poor mental health. I'm supposed to feel sorry for that bitch. I don't. 
And while, yeah, that could have been a factor, there are a lot of parents who struggle with depression or who are struggling financially and their first thought is not to kill their kids and then make it look like they killed themselves. I also think, though, that this case and many others similar to it highlight the absolute inadequacy of child welfare services across Canada because, in my opinion, I know people are like, oh, well, it, just because they're, you know, they have history of DV against the wife or the partner it doesn't mean that they're going to be abusive towards the kids. To me, that is what that means, 100%, because those kids are an extension of that partner. So if they're abusive to that partner, they're going to abuse the kids that are in their presence because that's the closest thing to that partner, right? They're going to mistreat those kids because it's the closest thing to that partner because they can't get at the partner anymore. To me, that only makes logical sense. And I'm sure had things been, you know, if police and the courts weren't involved and it was strictly community-based, he would have had supervised visits with them or he wouldn't really have been able to see them that much at all. There wouldn't have been much of an option because that was what's that was what was in the best interest of the kids, you know? I'm sure they love their father a lot, but love doesn't matter when a parent poses a risk to you and your, you know, your well-being. That's on period. I do think that Sarah did the right thing in calling them out and you know, making sure that they, this was on them. While yes, obviously Andrew was responsible, they could have stepped in and done a lot of preventative measures. The, someone should have been talking with her literally the day that she sent them the email about the fact that he had no hydro because that's a safety risk. How you have kids in your custody and you don't have hydro, you don't have lights, you know what I mean? You don't have things that you need for basic survival. He's facing eviction. He has debt piling up. He quit his job. These are all things that whoever is involved in the case should have been aware of and should have been giving the kids to Sarah full time, even if it's just temporarily until he gets his stuff figured out and sorted. I hated how he used these mystery people of color as a justification or an explanation for what happened, even though it made no sense. Ugh, disgusted. In his mind, he's like, yeah, I'll just blame people of color and everyone will believe me. Because often that's how it's worked previously in Canada. But in this situation, I think it was extremely different because all of his wounds were like surface wounds. They weren't super deep. Because something happens when you try to harm yourself like that, your brain stops you from doing it. And that's why I believe he kept saying, leave me alone, get out, kill me, blah, 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 all this stuff. One, because he didn't want to be held accountable for what he did, but also because he figured that if he laid in that tub long enough, he would just die. I also think that a big trigger for him doing it on this day is because he found out somehow, and I'm sure it was through his cop sister, that his parents were going to his ex-wife's house to spend Christmas with his kids. Meanwhile, he was gonna be at home alone in the dark. They got a lot of coverage and I only wish that other cases similar to this or other women who are trying to fight things in a court or custody type of agreement that they get similar coverage, but that they get it before it's too late. I also wanted to talk about this case because I think that when we think about the holidays, we just think about all the good stuff, but there's a lot of pressure on people to buy things and it's a capitalistic holiday, right? Like it actually, if we look at it logistically, it has nothing to do with the birth of Christ. Christ was not actually born on Christmas. He would have been born in spring, but that's a conversation for another day. But it's just like a capitalistic holiday to get people to spend money that they don't have, put additional pressure. So I feel like around this time when you're looking at parents who have history of domestic violence, there should be extra care, whether that comes from community, because we know the authorities are always lacking, they're always fall short, they're basically better off not even being there because they cause more harm than they do actually help anybody. But there needs to be more things done to look into these parents and follow up with them and make sure the kids are safe throughout the holiday period, especially during the weeks that they're off from school. I just feel like it's so 
it should seem obvious at this point, right? Like I'm 23 and I can see that this only makes logical sense. But I don't think that child welfare organizations or people or, you know, social workers or any of those things genuinely care enough or they're being underpaid and overworked or, you know, all three. So nothing is really done and a lot of kids go through more abusive times or they're seriously harmed by these, their so-called parents. Oh, the other thing that literally made absolutely no sense was when he talked about how he took out his $40,000 pension to pay off his $25,000 debt when he could have paid off the debt and he could have paid the interest on the debt, right? And still been left with $5,000. And then he could have just went to work somewhere else. I don't know. The whole thing just didn't make sense. But the fact that in his mind, he had all this time to come up with a story. And this is the story he came up with is BS. Do I think that he owed someone money? Absolutely. Do I think that Paul existed? Absolutely not. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, then make sure to check out this playlist if you're watching on YouTube of other true crime cases that I have covered in the past. And if you are listening on any platform, then make sure to check out one of the many other true crime cases that I have, the episodes that I have out. There's a lot to pick from and I try to cover them in a way that's respectful to the family and to the victims and honors the situation for what it is, but also looks at things through a critical lens to give you a real idea of how this crime or crimes like it could have been prevented or would have been better handled if we kind of abolished the systems that we currently use and depend on and instead focused on community who knows actively what's going on and would know best how to handle these situations.